Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we have Dialect, who is a playwright, educator, um, kind of research on, uh, currently he's doing research on how words can affect things, uh, especially mean words. He is curating a New York premiere called Dialect's Museum of Dead Words Art Installation. It is a week-long event series running between September 21st to September 27th at the Art Apple in New York. He has has turned his research into a one-man show, museum tour, and art installation rap album happening all at once that people can experience. Uh, he's also put out a song talking about his research on Spotify called The Museum of the Dead Word, which uh, is up currently, and we will link to this, and I listened to earlier today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so one here. thing... Yeah, excellent. One thing we always like to start with is how did you get into, well, you do a number of things, research, art, installation, rap. How did you get into the performing arts, arts world? Uh, I mean, I guess uh, I like to say that I've always been doing the thing that, you know, we kind of, even before we know we're doing what we're doing, we're training ourselves for that. And I was definitely the type of kid where if I knocked over the lamp and my parents came home, and was like, ooh, who broke the lamp? I'm like, well, you see, Ma, what happened was, you know, I was just minding my own business and a dragon came through and <laughs> wanted to, to take all the food in the fridge. And I said no. So we had a fight and was tearing it all over the place. And I knocked over the lamp in the fight. But I saved the food so we can have dinner tonight. Uh, so bet your mom appreciated that. Yeah, I've always been kind of a performer. I really started, um, I guess, my senior year of high school. I acted in the school musical, the, the Sound of Music. I was Uncle Max. I was not a good singer. I always wanted to be a singer. My mom was a wonderful singer. Got a voice like Minnie Robertson, but I, I don't have that. They cut both of my songs, but everybody really <laughs> liked the acting. I really liked the performance part of it. And at the same time, I also, um, you know, having like been trying out music and singing like my mom, I had written a rap, not really knowing what to do with that. Uh, but just, you know, I've been writing, I've been, you know, performing, stuff like that. <clears throat> and I told a friend of mine who I was in an after-school acting improv kind of thing with. And he was like, hey, you know, some of my peoples have a rap group. I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I went to their spot. They had a little studio, the studio being like a karaoke recorder hooked up to a computer. <laughs> and, you know, it, you know uh, we didn't have a lot of resources then. And I went there and I, I kicked my rap for them. And they were like, hey, you want to record that? And I was like, okay, and recorded it. And then I was in the rap group. Uh, moved up to the States for college. I majored in, well, not film, in theater uh, at Hofstra University and immediately hated it. Uh, I didn't <laughs> like the way that they were teaching. Um, you know, I'm an educator too, and I'm really not big on instructive style of teaching for creative stuff. Uh, rather than laying out a template, I would rather folks relay their experiences and facilitate my journey. So anyway, I wasn't feeling it. So I left, but I was really digging New York because 
I wasn't really feeling theater out of most theater. Like I went to the Broadway shows and the off-Broadway joints and a lot of the stuff felt like TV on stage. But the hey. thing that did feel like theater, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little, little cough. Um, the thing that did feel like theater was seeing cats on the street corner with a boom box kicking freestyles. It was interactive, it was engaging. It felt like it did require an audience member to be what it was. So I was really digging that and I stayed in New York. I ended up going across the street to Nassau Community College, which gave me a really great education. Uh, you know, community colleges are awesome. And I met a lot of folks in theater and in hip hop that kept me here. And I've been doing both. I was auditioning. <clears throat> I started writing for the stage when I went to auditions and you know, I'm biracial. Um, I grew up in the Caribbean. I've got like a little bit of a different background. And I would come to these things and I realized that most of these institutions didn't have a great understanding of black community, the black family, uh, mixed race identity folks. So I started writing. At the same time, I've been teaching, sharing with those kinds of experiences. And a friend of mine I was recording a, a song with, he was like, man, you know, all this like rapping and, and teaching and, and, and you writing stuff on stage, you up there acting and stuff, you know, all that's just talking. Why don't you just do it all at once? <laughs> so I wrote a, a rap album that was a one-man play. It was uh, about my experience when I lived in uh, Pennsylvania where we had race riots and my biracial behind. And uh, I wrote this play where it's like I'm in the guidance counselor's office after the big riot and I'm talking back and I would erupt into rap songs and that would be the record and the play. And I also built a six week curriculum about literacy and identity that I brought all around the country. I brought back home to St. Croix where I grew up and <clears throat> shared it. Uh, I think it was like 17 schools and organizations, hundreds of kids. And I've basically been going from there. What was the name of that? Uh, is like, Can people find it now if they want to see it or do it, the, that show? Yes. Um, I mean, there's uh, some video, some places, but the album is definitely very available online in all the places. Your streamables, um, you can download it from your band camps and your iTunes and all those places. Uh, that one is called Square Peg Syndrome. Cool name. And it was, yeah, thank you. It mm -hmm. was autobiographical based yeah. on your experience? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. I'm trying to think if I, I did any real, I, like, I didn't like say a lot of people's names. It was uh, mostly about um, my internal story through the whole situation and how I mm -hmm. felt about, you know, people always used to say with the biracial thing, they'd be like, oh, you get the best of both worlds. And I used to be like, ah. And the worst of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit of that too. So, uh, you know, and one of the great things about it that I thought was awesome was when I shared it with youth, uh, you know, the idea of being a square peg, you know, my, my racial identity was a stumbling block for me as a kid, but regardless of how we define ourselves, we often have these identity issues that make it difficult for us to succeed or be happy in the place we're in. And I found that your identity is very tied to your ability to learn. Uh, one teaching technique I was shown is asking a student if a student cheated on a test don't ask them if it's okay or if they think it's okay to cheat on the test ask them if they think they're the type of person who cheats on tests and the answer that you get will be very revealing of their character and i found that 
you know, I, I was doing this one program where I had these students, they were incarcerated and uh, there were these two, oh, this is a twin story. We were talking about twin stories before. Uh, <laughs> these two young gentlemen, they were twins. They were both incarcerated. They were both, uh, they'd been rapping before me. I didn't come in there and like show them how to do it. And their rap names were the evil twin and the evil twin. They were about 14 <laughs> and they had been told their whole life that they were bad people. And what they decided was, well, I'll just be the best at it. Right. And you could see how a lot of their ability to learn and their access to things were stunted by the way that they saw themselves. And because of what they were told their whole lives. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been pushed into this area. So when I say the whole thing is like a square peg syndrome, they also felt like square pegs. They didn't have that same type of ethnic identity issue, but they had an identity of the way that they fit into the world and the way that people told them where they belonged and what their ceiling was. Mm -hmm. But by being able to take control of those stories and write for themselves, they were able to dig into their identity similarly to what I did in my work. And did that help them um, figure out that they didn't have to be in jail or in prison or causing problems or anything? Well, you know, I mean, a, a lot of jail and prison and causing problems are, uh, have to do with outside sources, but it yes. definitely gave them the idea that they didn't have a limited ceiling and they didn't have as limited options as they thought before. I mean, one student, this wasn't the same one, but uh, I had one student who told me he was illiterate. He was like, yo, I can't read. I can't write. I'm not good with words. I'm sorry. I can't do this. And I gave him some prompts and we would have him freestyle and I wrote down his rhymes and then read them back to him. And he was brilliant. He was verbose. He was, you know, very literary. He had references to things. And I was, I was showing him, I was like, look, man, you have this idea of yourself because of what folks have shown you, what folks have told you about what you can't achieve, but you actually can and are already doing it. Right. Because you still know how to talk and use your words. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we get stuck upon the medium. I think that's one of the reasons why I like flipping around my mediums, too. What made you come to this idea? Like, how did you realize this? Because it's such a huge concept. Was there somebody in your life that led you in this direction? Or did you just one day you wake up and you're like, what is going on? Uh, it's a number of things. And I, like I said, you know, my mom uh, was a, a performer, not really professionally. She thought like the industry was really dirty and didn't want to be a part of it. She thinks I'm crazy. But, you know, my mom <laughs> being a performer... Uh, my father was a bodybuilder and educator. He had this like program of getting kids off the streets and into the gym and stuff like that. Uh, so I, you know, I've often been around folks like that. And I started performing because I was shy. And I started teaching because I didn't like the way that folks were teaching. You know, mm -hmm. I, I was always about, you know, getting in where I could fit in and making the change and making the help that I, I thought that I could make. And mm -hmm. the thing that really got me was hip-hop culture. People know a lot about rap music. And when I moved to New York, I went to the Bronx where the old school hip-hop cats were. I, I met guys like Pee Wee Dance and Rocksteady and um, the old Zulu Nation crew, which is like the foundation of the cultural part of hip-hop where they have the break dancers and graffiti writers and the DJs and the MCs and everybody doing their thing together. And I realized why hip-hop is the thing it is. Uh, aside from the commodification of it, it is the connection of all the different forms of expression, speaking, taking things apart and remixing them and changing their ideas. Like the things that DJs do are the same things that directors and photographers do, where they take something that's already exists and recontextualize it to make sense for other people. 
the b-boys, the dancers, the kinesthetic, moving people, the graffiti writers, the shy people who write their names on the wall at midnight and want to communicate but don't want to do so face to face, the beatboxers whose actual mode of expression is the original form of communication, the drum. I mean, as African slaves, you know, uh, my mom's side of the family, our ancestors were told not to play the drum. They would kill us because that was being used as a form of communication for liberation. So all of these forms together, especially when you see them all in the same space, are how everybody expresses. And how you express is how you learn. And once I realized that, I started putting that into both my performance and my education work to get folks to understand that we can lean in whatever direction works for us, but essentially we're all kind of doing the same thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You just don't have to confine yourself to what somebody else thinks you have to do in order to learn that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I never thought graffiti artists uh, are expressing themselves, but they can't do it face-to-face, so they do it on walls and stuff. Yeah, interesting. Like yeah, some graffiti funny. artists I find very impressive. Their work is amazing. I can't get spray paint to do that at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the same way. I like to say, you know, I also wanted to, you know, draw comic books and paint stuff and tried that when I was a kid. And I, I like to say that I'm a rapper because I have to use all thousand words to make my pictures. It's really amazing <laughs> stuff that folks do with their, their visual art. The whole idea, um, what's that, the, 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 the Play-Doh thing with, you know, you see the block of stone, but you don't see a block of stone. You see the sculpture underneath. Those visual yeah. artists, they have that in them. You know, uh, I feel that way when I hear a beat. You know, uh, I hear a beat and I can envision sounds and words that connect to it. But when I'm looking at a blank sheet of canvas, I have no idea what's supposed to be there. So I yeah. really appreciate folks who have that perspective. Yeah, I've always been impressed. Like, I can... People are like, you're artsy. I'm like, no, I take other people's art and I make it real in theater, but I don't, I usually don't do the design and all of that. I don't see where it's going before, beforehand. Excellent. So then how did you come up with the project that you're currently working on uh, based on words that, well, words that hurt people and your research on the internet mm-hmm. and how that connects? So it started, it's this thing that was like, it kind of, crept up on me because I'd been doing it without knowing I was doing it. But the genesis that really made me stand up and take notice is I couldn't talk to some people about racism specifically because we didn't share the definition of the word. Some people I'd be talking to, you know, I might be talking about systemic racism, how, you know, there are oppressive systems around us and they're talking about, uh, I don't like you because you're different racism. And we're not able to have a conversation or even an argument. So I think arguments can be productive. Even yelling angry arguments can be productive. But we couldn't even have an argument because we're not talking about the same thing. So what ends up happening is we just like had a semantic argument, which is about nothing. And I was wondering if there were other words, because I was feeling recently in these times, I mean, it's not like it's not been since the dawn of time that folks have had these types of communication issues, but I've been feeling especially acute pain in having these kind of conversations. So I went looking for the words that also cause these kinds of impasses. And I thought the perfect place to find would be internet comments. As we were talking about, you know, graffiti and how the beautiful work that they make, you know, uh, one thing that's great about writing words in these graffiti styles is words that are written in a way that is difficult for your eye to read, makes it last longer in your brain and it's easier to memorize. Conversely, though it's really easy to read typeface, typeface conveys zero personality and zero 
uh, I, I guess, uh, emotional quality. I went to yes. this amazing museum in Paris where they had handwriting and ledgers and memos. They had original theory of relativity notes and you could see Einstein's stuff and Freud taking interviews with people and looking in the handwriting, you know, there is art to that. And whether they're artistic or not, you can see so many aspects of their personality and their mood and things like that. The type word conveys nothing. So it's just this blank slate where, so we've lost the emotional quality. So all that's left is text. And when you look at the text of what a lot of people have said online, man, I mean, one thing that's great about internet comments too, is that it's this place where people feel, people feel safe to kind of say what they want. Yeah, and there's no repercussions because they're hiding behind a screen. Yeah, they're hiding behind a screen and they're all just sort of typing it out. It's so funny to me because some of the stuff that I look at, I think like, wow, that's really mean. And I could see myself getting angry enough in person to get worked up and say some wild stuff. But they like sat there and calmly or angrily typed it, which to be like, I'm like, wow, that you have to have like a fervent belief in your anger and that your anger is justified to type it out. But uh, what they were doing is not only they were being hid by having the these screen names, but by having it just be text, we lost all nuance, we lost all openness to empathy. I mean, you can't even tell somebody if they're being sarcastic. Someone could have you know posted some mean sounding stuff that was meant as a sarcastic joke, but we don't understand that because we don't understand the tone, tone mm -hmm. and rhythm. You know, do all the heavy lifting with words. So I researched online to see these conversations that people were having and which words were stopping conversation or creating it where it's just a semantic fight. First, just sort of digging around aimlessly. I went to all the websites, your sports websites, your arts websites, your news websites. And eventually I found words that weren't working and I specifically started looking for them. For the sake of, uh, I guess brevity more than anything, I chose 11 words. I probably could have chosen twice as many uh, that I defined as dead in that they don't really work because we don't share the definition of what they mean. And that's for several reasons. I mean, some of these words never really worked. You know, they were always created as a, an excuse or a way to trick folks. And some of these words like the word racism were beaten down over many years. Like the, the word racism was a great idea to be able to call out when people are treating each other in an unequal, unhelpful way. But, you know, you, you hear people say stuff like now, like, oh, well, people who call other people racist are the real racists. I see that kind of stuff a lot, which is a weirdly snake eating its tail type of philosophy. But what I found, especially with this online stuff where it's readable, is if you repeat something long enough, it becomes a valid viewpoint. And... Mm -hmm. That's sort of what happened is people have repeated these false definitions so long that other people have started incorporating them as actual definitions. And what it's done, it's uh, to use a fun word I'd like that doesn't get used enough, it obfuscates the real point of what is trying to be said. And it makes it so that we've moved from communication and working together in the hip hop way, we call it like a cipher, you know, a big circle, to something more stratified and violent and zero sum, where I'm just trying to get a win over you, regardless of actually whether or not we're getting anywhere with the text of what we're talking about. Yeah, I feel a lot of people argue not to hear the other person's side, but to just beat them on their argument. Mm -hmm. So that they don't mm -hmm. actually want to learn what the other people have to say and see how it's different than them. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's the stuff that I was seeing. And uh, I think that that was, it, it was a lot. So what I did is I then dug up the etymology of the words. I went through like the history of where they went. I uh, went and found more evidence. I wrote rap songs about how they died. Some of the words get used in their songs. Uh, some of the words don't. I was playing around with that. You know, one of the things that people ask me a lot is like, well, should we not say these words? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not telling nobody not to say any kind of anything. Say what you want. I just think that folks should be aware that when you're speaking about these things, that there are going to be a number of groups who sometimes willfully and sometimes not are not going to understand what you mean. And therefore, greater nuance is necessary. One of the words in the museum is obvious or obviously. And that's because of the mess with all the other things. You know, obvious, you know, there are things that are, you, know, you think are very clear and are obvious to you. And then you share that with people and they're like, oh, I don't think that's true. And as we're finding more and more, there really is nothing that we should be able to assume is obvious. It's a little sad, but it is what it is. That is sad. Yeah. But it, yeah, it is true. There's so many things I'm like, well, obviously this is okay. And people are like, no, it's not. And I'm like, well, why not? Like, it seems obvious to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Okay, I, I mean, didn't think about that. Yeah, like think about like, like vaccinations, climate change. Yeah. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, I talk a lot about racial stuff and sexism and pay gaps. And there's a lot of these things that on different sides of divides and in many places where you didn't even realize there was a divide, you might say like, yeah, well, we all know this and we all agree on this. And people jump up and they're like, nah, actually. <laughs> it's the whole thing about like common sense, how common sense isn't really common. Exactly. Actually, um, I, I didn't leave it in there, but I did have one. Of, I used that phrase in one of the songs. I ended up editing it out. Yeah. But that very much. I mean, this is kind of the thing. And this is where I think it's honestly really harmful is people take these harmful, deleterious terms and ideas and make them common sense. And then it becomes something that we all have within us, even when it's not true. Like um, one thing, you know, my wife and I, we do uh, hip hop and finance education. And we talk a lot about the racial wealth divide and the history of race and wealth. We have a couple of podcasts ourselves that we talk about these kind of things. And black people are fried chicken and watermelon. Mm -hmm. yep. My mother ahead. would tell me not to eat watermelon or not to eat fried chicken in front of my dad's side of the family. It was a weird, embarrassing thing that no one ever had a good explanation for. And what happened with that is back when African folks were free from chattel slavery, I know there's a lot of other complications with that, but you know, when that whole emancipation proclamation happened, they were left to their own devices and needed to figure out how to make money for themselves. And they found that watermelons grew in small places. You can you know, grow a lot of watermelon in a small place where it didn't have to be the best soil and you can grow it. And chickens also grew in relatively small places and you can take care of them pretty easily and pretty cheaply. So fried chicken and watermelon, well, chickens and watermelon, of course, you know, frying is an easy way to cook it, but chickens and watermelon were the way that uh, freed Africans were able to not only feed themselves and their family, but make industry and start selling to other people. So at the time, the minstrel shows, you find like, especially as a theater person, man, you find so many of the things that are just commonplace now are due to minstrel shows. But the mm -hmm. minstrel shows of the time, uh, the newspaper articles, the uh, 
news cartoons that they would draw would depict these foods as tools of the lazy and the incompetent and also almost paradoxically use these images of smiling freed Africans happy with their newfound foods as the reason to say that situations and the conditions for freed Africans weren't that bad. And they did such a good job of it that more than a hundred years later, I got my aunts telling me not to suck on the end of that watermelon at the barbecue with the family. So, you know, when you talk about common sense not being common and it being easily manipulable, I mean, it's amazing and breathtaking how good of a job it does. And I don't think we really give that enough credence. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know any of that history. Everybody always says it, but, you know, watermelon and fried chicken, but I didn't know where it came from or why it stuck or why chicken and watermelon. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. I yeah, mean, I it, it, it's it's sad how like simple like a lot of this stuff breaks down to somebody with a lot of access decided they wanted to be a jerk to folks and other people couldn't stop it, so people <laughs> rode along with it. Yeah. And then, like you said, it became commonplace and so everyone just assumed that was right because yeah. It was everywhere. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> I, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to bring everything down. Uh, yeah. Sometimes my work gets a little bit heavy. That's another good reason why I uh, infuse it in art. Because then after that, then I can like, make a, a joke or something or do like a little dance. Because, man, we need to move on from those, those uh, heavy moments. Well, that's why I... Sydney and I both grew up loving music and we still listen to it 24-7. She's actually in the opera world. Uh, When you feel depressed or angry or something, we really like this band, uh, a ska band, Real Big Fish, because their words are not always happy and go, you know, lucky. But their music is so upbeat, but they're saying very heavy things. And it just kind of helped balance it out to be like, yeah, okay, I'm really angry, but I'm singing really happily. And they kind of, you know... (laughs) Helps. <laughs> uh, I mix love Ska. Together. I, I'm right there with you. Uh, I like Real Big Fish. I love Ska. I uh, came up to the States uh, from college uh, right around the time Ska was blowing up. And I loved it because it was like, oh, this is like a rock and roll version of reggae and calypso. Yeah. Very similarly would express these ideas of, you know, these coming from places of pain and being able to put them in these different places. Yeah, I love... Um, I don't know if I can cuss on your, your show, but the oh, yeah, song, yeah. Everyone Else is an Asshole. Yes. I think that's, really, that's my jam. That's my jam. It's, it's sarcastic. Great. It's funny. It's witty. And it expresses a very real emotion. Yeah. That's why I thought it was interesting. Yeah, you're doing rap and all because it, you know, talking about heavy things, but when you put it to music, people can, like, access it easier somehow. Yeah, I mean, that's why rap uh, was able to go different places in subject matter. One of the things I always talk about with folks with rap and like what makes what we do differently than other songwriters is we use like four times as much words as every other genre. So we're able to dig into a lot of nuance. So that gives us the ability to not just write a song where I go, I'm depressed, I'm sad. We're going to tell you the whole story of how we became depressed and sad and what the outside influences were, what we found out about it, and what we want to do about it. In the yeah, same amount of time. Yeah, exactly. All in three and a half minutes. Uh, you know, that's that's the, the fun. And I, I noticed that then other genres of music started adding on more and more words and the stuff that they're doing, too. And that's why you're seeing a lot more breadth 
in the subject matter of music in general these days. Mm -hmm. I have a question about, you've mentioned a few times the words that you chose and how they died. Yeah. Can you explain that more? Like to you, what does it mean the word died? Is it because it no longer means to the wider population what it actually means? So to a great degree, yeah. Uh, when it no longer means to us what, uh, what we thought it meant. And uh, more importantly, when, because words change and grow, you know, there's this whole thing about how uh, words meaning change every single time we use them, because that's kind of the nature, the propulsive nature of conversation. And uh, I think that that's great and that's fine. And what becomes a problem is as we get all these conflicting meanings of words, words can die when we reach a point where it's difficult to ascertain even the meaning. And especially when people start using these words as weapons to just beat down other folks, like we were talking about earlier, where then you're just basically calling someone an asshole rather than getting to the matter of something and finding something new, which is what conversation is about, you know? Mm -hmm. When you were choosing these words, what made you choose? You said there's 11 of them. What made you mm -hmm. choose those 11 words? Is it? those were the ones that resonated the most with you or the ones that you could explain the easiest in a, uh, in a setting? Yeah. So a little of both. And then a few other things. I mean, there's a, a lot of mess with a lot of words in the English language right now. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. narrowing it down. <laughs> exactly. The thing of it is, is like, it's not really just about these words. It's about us looking deeper into the way that we converse. So I wanted to find words that would help remind you of the other words rather than like hit you with 50 words that aren't making sense or aren't working. And I gave myself some arbitrary guidelines and rules like some of them, uh, if they worked in different uh, variations of the word, then I would make sure that that was fine. Like um, one word that I wanted to use, criminal. Criminal is not a useful word when it's a noun. But it is a useful word as a verb. When people say, you know, a criminal activity with criminal intent, those are still things that are useful and make a lot of sense. When we are labeling someone a criminal, that's not really a useful term. That's something that people like to use to scare people. Mm -hmm. like this person is a criminal. Well, you know, that's really broad. If this mm -hmm. person is a criminal, does that mean that they've committed a crime? Does that mean that they've committed a crime? If you're saying that they committed a crime, well, how many of us haven't committed some sort of crime? Are you talking a felony alone? Are you talking only a violent crime? It's way too broad to be a useful term. But again, since that was only in the noun and the verb was still useful, I was like, fine, we'll leave criminal out of it. And again, I was creating these. And also ones where uh, it was a phrase rather than a word. Uh, Opinion is useful as a word, but whenever you hear somebody say, well, in my opinion, you know there's going to be trouble. <laughs> right. right. Not so useful. Exactly. So that's a, and because of that technicality, I left opinion out so that I could use some of the other words in there. How long did it take you to do this? Because I can imagine you coming up with all of these words and all these phrases and then spending hours and hours coming up with every possible way to use that word. Like yeah. you said, uh, like as a noun versus a verb versus a phrase, and then just like whittle it down. I mean, it took a really long time. I researched yeah. for a year before I did any sort of writing. Uh, I just sat there. I, I spent several hours a day uh, after doing my other work things and 
would dig through these internet comments and catalog them and make arguments for them and make arguments against them and look up pieces of them. Uh, I was told, because I didn't realize it on my own, that I went into like a very serious depression. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife was like saying she had to like shake me out of it sometimes. And it was, I mean, it was heavy just being in that world. Well, that's, yeah, that was kind of going to be my next question. And partly it's interesting talking about this and I'll say why in a minute, but if you're diving into people's comments online are always kind of depressing because Mm -hmm. as we were saying earlier, the way that people feel the freedom to talk about different things or to express themselves with absolutely no repercussions. So I can imagine that being depressing. What I find so interesting is the show that I'm currently working on in Philadelphia is a world premiere called Denise and Katya, which was about the Russian, the two children in Russia. I call them children there in high school. Um, only a few years ago, who killed themselves were killed on Periscope. They did it all live through Periscope. But the our opera itself is about people's reaction to that. And a lot of the projections we're using are people's comments to the Periscope, like telling these kids that they should kill themselves, telling these kids that they deserved what they got, telling them that they should jump off the roof. All of these things, these people who had no idea who these two kids were, you know, just like telling them to kill themselves and like how depressing that is, that people's words can be that strong without them having any repercussion for it. Whereas if you were to walk up to somebody in the street and tell them that they should go jump off the building and kill themselves, you know, probably a huge fight ensuing after that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. People in Stanford, that you're right. Yeah, uh, you re- you really hit on it. Um, you you mentioned one of my words, and it, it really, you know, a lot of the the theater show and in the song, I talk about different forms of storytelling. Uh, I talk about theater, and I talk about film. I talk about music. I even do some inside baseball kind of conversations <laughs> about those in there. Um, and one of it, it's the word deserve. Deserve is this word mm-hmm. that really works. As a writer, when you are writing a story, like if you like the horror films, right, and the horror stories, the thing about horrors is like you have these characters that they do some dastardly thing to where, as an audience member, you feel like they deserve to get killed. Mm-hmm. And the heroes and the heroic stories, they do these things to make you feel like they deserve to get their wins. And that's something that exists in this fantasy world that we create. But real life is not as orderly. Mm-hmm. There is also this mammalian thing that we have. This is like a mammal, John, that we're like, we um, we feel like uh, things should have order and things should go in an orderly way. So when mm-hmm. things act uh, conversely to status quo, then we're like, well, what did you do to deserve to be in that situation? And this is why I've said that I feel like deserve is also a dead word because it's something that really should only work in these abstract, uh, hypothetical, creative situations where we're writing stories rather than our interpretations of situations in real life. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I never thought about that. Like, why did I do anything to deserve good or bad or to be subject to anything? Yeah, even if you want to be like, I, I deserve good things. I get this from folks all the time. And like... I get the whole power of positive thinking and I'm down with all of that stuff. One thing that's dangerous with that is if you sit in there being like, well, I deserve this and I deserve this. And then you don't get it because, you know, life is life and, you know, things happen. Then does that mean that you were wrong and you didn't deserve it? No, it's just stuff happened. 
<laughs> and don't allow that to make that the reason why, well, oh, I guess I didn't deserve it, so I should just give up and stop. Well, that's what I was going to say. And then you'll get even more depressed or more upset or more negative because something didn't go the way that you thought it should have gone. Yeah, I, I've, I've been on auditions. Man, if I walked away from an audition being like, oh, I deserve it. This is some divinely ordained reason that the universe has decided I should do this. Oh, and, and I've been there. I think we've all been there in some kind mm-hmm. of way. Patterns lead us to that. And and then you don't get stuff for reasons you'll never know about, for reasons that might have had nothing to do with anything you did. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. it makes that imposter syndrome feel way too real. <laughs> I was literally just having a conversation with somebody yesterday about imposter syndrome. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Fuck imposter syndrome. Sure. <laughs> world. Small world for everybody. <laughs> well, the conversation was because you brought it up with the fact of auditioning um, was do the people in the theater world and the arts world experience imposter syndrome more often than people in other fields? Hmm. You know, I don't know enough about like the stats for it, but uh, my wife and I in our work with young folks, with grown folks going around talking to people about money, I feel like, we don't have it more than folks in other industries. I think that in many industries, in many walks of life, people have very severe imposter syndrome that is encouraged by social media and more importantly, encouraged by people who are the gatekeepers of the status quo in all of our industries. There are a lot of Mm -hmm. people who are very insecure about money and their station, and they didn't ever want to be a star, be in movies, or do big concerts. They just wanted to have a job and live their life and do their thing with their family. But they look on Instagram, and they see everybody doing all these crazy things because everyone curates the best possible image that they can of that situation. If Mm -hmm. they talk to their boss who's saying, you're a lazy loser if you're not working 10 hours a day, even though we don't pay overtime because you've got to be a team player and all this kind of stuff. And they're exhausted and worn down and don't have time when they get home or energy to work on that crochet project or that <laughs> short story or that like whatever thing yeah. that you, that is the thing that makes you feel like you and makes you really excited to do this life thing. And I think that also the oppressive situations that we live in whether you are of African-American descent, whether you are Latino, whether you are an immigrant, whether you are a woman, whether you are homosexual or trans or any of these other put upon groups for several reasons that we could you know, talk several different podcasts about. But whenever you're a member of one of these groups, all of the imposter syndrome you face is backed up by people telling you in your face that it's right and that Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have these things, and that you're stupid, and that you're lazy, and that you're angry, and that you're a monster, that you're not a person, all of these kinds of things that you don't deserve, that you're less than. So I think regardless of industry, we're inundated with these horrible images of ourselves that people have been using very effectively to sell things to us and to keep us in our spots. Do you think the internet has grown that? Because, again, they're protected behind a screen, so the hate and the you're not doing this right and you're a bad people has grown because of that? So, I'm not sure if it's grown. It's, well, you know, one of those cool things about the internet uh, is, like, you know, as an indie artist, I'm able to reach way more people than I was before because I'm able to find people who are interested in these niches. And while I won't necessarily th- say that I think that these things have grown because of the internet, but... 
folks are able to reach out and have more influence. And as people are growing their ability to connect to each other, these bigger corporations with these bigger resources are able to find ways to continue to lord over us. Like one thing I was going to say is, uh, so redlining, you know, uh, raising in the sun, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Not wanting people to, you know, bring it to theater. Uh, not want uh, people to black people to be able to live in neighborhoods with white people, and it was this whole big mess. And people started putting laws in place so that you couldn't do it. Up until a couple of years ago, ProPublica found out that Facebook was allowing people to do digital redlining because they have their affinities tag in Facebook, where you are able, like, you can't say that somebody is black in Facebook because that that's. Uh, that's protected, you know, they're like actual identity. But what Facebook does do, and all of the social medias, not to just put it on Facebook, all the social medias do this thing where if you click like on three rap albums and basketball and some other stereotypically black thing, they put you in a black affinity. If you tap like on crepes and uh, English to French dictionary, they're like, oh, you like traveling to France, things like that. So they put people in these ethnicity-based affinities, uh, and then you're able, when you create ads, to include or exclude people from that. So it's this thing where it's like a little bit hands-off. We're like, we're not doing, you know, this isn't specifically redlining, but it is de facto redlining. And because they've got the technology and the access, again, it's always about access, and the access to all of this data, they're able to do that to us. So rather than saying it's it's grown, it's more that it's able to be um, consolidated. Or used used to people's advantage or disadvantage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So can you tell us more about this, the actual experience that you created in the museum? What does someone experience when they walk into it? Do you see all the 11 words at the same time or do you go through through a journey with the different words? What did you, what have you created? Yeah, so the show itself is basically it's a, a pop-up theater museum tour guided thing situation. I, I said that terribly. Uh, <laughs> it's a confusing mess. Uh, yeah, it probably is to some. Uh, but what happens is you walk into the space, and I have the words up uh, in this show that we're going to be doing at Art Apple. It's this amazing art gallery in Brooklyn. And the words, I have them all in their most appropriate, obnoxious fonts. I've got Papyrus and Helvetica and... You know, all, yeah, they're all in there. And uh, as you, as a tour guide, I take you on the journey of each word where I have some monologue and some interactive elements where I talk to the audience members about each word. We keep it like smaller groups so that we can have an intimate experience. And at each word, I break into the rap song about how the word died. So we take you through the experience of all of the words. And even when I'm not there in this place, because we're going to be up there for a week, when you come through to the Art Apple space, the words will be up. I've reached out to musicians and visual artists to help collaborate with me. I'm a big collaborative cat. I love jamming with folks. So I have painters making paintings about their experiences with these words. And I've also asked music producers to make some remixes of the songs 
and we're going to have some headphones set up so that when, when there's not a tour going on, you can check out the songs, you can check out some of the imagery. Uh, we're planning on also having a selfie booth, which is kind of set up like the uh, those wedding type of booths with little mm -hmm. props and stuff <laughs> like that. They're going to have some prompts and some things about the words for you to share your own experiences with words you think possibly may be dead and what you would like to do about these things. Because, you know, it's mad cliche in art to be like, yo, I'm trying to spark conversation. But on the real, y'all, I'm trying to spark conversation because that's literally <laughs> the point of the project that we're doing. And my idea is that I want people to be more aware of the conversations they have. So um, you can go through the space, look at the work. I'm gonna have a little bit of my evidence of my research there for people to check out too. And seven days because Art Apple is this great space where they do one week art installations, mostly looking forward to getting people who haven't been able to be in an art gallery yet, uh, mm -hmm. get them some, you know, some reps in an art gallery, help them sell their pieces. And, you know, it's easier for them rent wise. They get folks in and out rather than like having something up for six months because then mm -hmm. they only have to pick people who are like proven sellers. You know what I mean? Yeah. So every night we're going to have different panelists. Uh, discussing different forms of communication. Uh, the opening night, I'm going to have some musicians that I work with. We're going to be doing a live layout, dancers and other great artists. And the second night, we're going to, well, it's, it's second day is actually in the afternoon on Sunday. We're going to have some chefs coming in talking about food as communication. You know, my wife has this business, Brunch and Budget, where she's a financial planner and she talks to people about uh, their finances over food because food makes people feel more calm and they're able to have a communal experience. So I'm gonna have these chefs talking about food as communication. I'm also gonna be bringing in some other hip hop educators to talk about their experience about communication as hip hop educators. I have some developers and web related people to talk about digital literacy and digital communication. So every night is going to have a different discussion uh, after the show where we talk about how we talk about things in different mediums. So you could come every single night and get a completely different experience. Almost definitely. Also, because like on the real, if y'all know about the whole like devise theater thing, and I've really been taking that to heart as I've been doing this show all around the country, is I'm going to be interacting with folks and sharing some prompts. And I do have some canned statements and things of my research that I want to share, but I'm also very much having a conversation with the people with me. That's why we're limiting the audience size. It's always been really important to me, as I was alluding to earlier, that theater be as interactive as possible. If we're, if it's just me doing my thing, then you could just catch it on YouTube or whatever. I could just film mm -hmm. it once and call it a day. I really want you to be a part of what we're doing because otherwise I'm not theatering. That's, that's how I feel. So yeah, I mean, every night is going to be very much a different show as I dig into the things that the specific group that I'm with really needs to understand or wants to share. Oh, I could even see that. Like you, how do I word this? I think what, how you said it was just awesome. Like depending on the group of people, it can all start out the same. The first word can all be very similar conversation. And then as you learned about the people in your group, it could go in a completely different direction by the time you hit the 11th word. Oh man, we did one in Miami recently where uh, I pulled out one of the internet comments mm -hmm. uh, and I it was about the word obvious. And I had a young lady from the audience read it out loud. And basically the gist of the internet comment was, it's obvious to me that women don't like comic book movies 
because of my personal experience. He even says in the comment, I know that statistics say otherwise, but it's obviously not true. Girls don't like video game stuff and, oh. and, and comic books. And now, mind you, this was like right around when the Avengers Endgame movie came out and made like all of the money on Earth. That was our <laughs> like, opening night. <laughs> well, but but not just that. The woman who read the the thing, she was like, "I've been a comic book reader since I was a child, and guys have always told this to me, and it really made her upset seeing this thing." And it was funny because I thought that that was one of the more innocuous things. It was just some jerk being like, well, it's obvious to me that women don't like stuff because of my small personal experience. And man, that really brought out stuff in her because she's, you know, that's the thing about conversations where people are like, oh, sticks and stones, words don't ever hurt me. There's this thing, this like Sisyphean thing when folks continually, willfully misunderstand you as a person, whether it's something as simple as your creative interests, the things that you like to read and watch, or other things that are much more indicative of you as a person, man, you just feel like you're literally slamming your head against a wall. Mm-hmm. No, I've had a few conversations with people where somebody was joking and it like really cut deep. And I, you know, didn't want to bring down the mood of the conversation, but I'd be like, I'm really sorry, but like, this is really effective to me, this really hurts in this way, or this really like rubs me the wrong way, you know? And I could tell that they got really embarrassed about it, but I was like, no, I have to tell you because I can't have you like going on joking about this topic that is really important to me. And you're just joking about it, which is not cool, you know? But, and which they're is, usually- And that's healthy, right? I think that's healthy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, folks are too sensitive and all that kind of stuff. Like, no, let's talk about our sensitivities and all that stuff. That's why we have society so we can have each other's backs. And I feel All like talking life, about yeah. yeah, talking about it makes it not talk makes it less sensitive, but makes it more of a conversation. I feel like if I would just sit over in the corner and sulk about it and no one knew why I was sulking, you know, like it would just continue or the patterns would continue or this joke would continue, you know, and I feel like that's even more dangerous than having a five minute awkward maybe conversation being like, oh, I don't like this conversation. This is why you have a conversation about it and then you move on. Yeah, but I think that exactly. can also that can help the poor person who said it because maybe to them it's obvious that girls don't like comic books. But if like five girls all at different times are like, dude, what's your problem? I love comic books. Then maybe he's going to stop saying it. Or maybe he's going to be yeah. like, oh, maybe I was wrong. Or maybe I'm just talking to the girls who don't like comic books or something because. <laughs> maybe I'm attracted yeah. to the wrong people. <laughs> exactly. Right? I, and that's the great thing. You know, it's funny when uh, in the like business seminar stuff, when people are talking to you about like how to be a smart entrepreneur and all, they always talk about failing quickly. And that's something that I don't think we do socially enough right. is be real about who you are and what you believe and what you're with and what you're not with. And let's bump heads about it and then be okay with each other rather than harboring stuff. I don't remember the actual, uh, the people who did this, but there was this study where they were talking about how escalation of uh, altercations has a lot to do with the how far it goes. Like, basically, if you will have an argument, you won't have a fist fight. If you have a fist fight, you won't have a knife fight. If you have a knife fight, you won't have a gunfight. But if you won't even have an argument, you jump straight to the gunfight. Mm-hmm. And this is stuff that they've shown like in communities where people are often more polite. It's why oftentimes you'll find like these mass shooting types of things happening in smaller places where people don't have these kinds of arguments often with people is folks go from zero to 11 really fast. 
And then they're like, gee, I don't know why he did that. He never said anything before. It's like, yeah, what do you think was building inside of him the whole time? Exactly, exactly. It's why I'm personally, I'm much happier to be contentious with folks. In fact, some of my best friends are folks where I met them with an argument. I remember one of my good <laughs> rap homeboys, he uh, did a song, uh, this guy named Niles, this great MC and hip hop educator out in Minneapolis. And he did this song about the middle passage. And like, I agreed with like 90% of his song, but there was like one thing where I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. And I came up to him and I was like, yo, peace. Yo, so what's up with that one line you said? And then he gave his respect. Now I gave my perspective. We talked about it. And you know, now we're friends to this day. And I think that those things are important. That's how you create real bonds with people when you're able to be vulnerable from jump. Yeah. yeah. I like that saying. That's <laughs> if we talked I mean, about like it, we wouldn't have so many issues, maybe. Well, it's like the dating thing. You know how, like, um, especially when we're young, we first start dating and you go on the first date and you do, like, your persona and it's, like, perfect you and stuff like that. And you're like, no, no, everything that you like is fine and all this stuff. And then three months later, y'all arguing about all this stuff. And then eventually after you've gone on a few of these dates and you get tired of it, then you're like, hey, so this is date one. I like this. I don't like this. And this is where I'm at. Cool. <laughs> And those are how where you get like the better relationships because you no, really know so each other's true. hands. <laughs> so, so true in so many ways. <laughs> I'm saying, yeah, you know, I, I think it's like it's it's fundamental stuff uh, that we don't apply to our personal lives, to our communal society stuff, and we don't explore enough in art. So things bubble over and then they get big real quick. Yeah, I think art is a good form for people to uh, have or at least see those conversations or kind of have those conversations, but in a safe place. If they listen to a song and they agree with it or don't agree with it or whatnot, then they're kind of having a moment with that song or watching a play where two people are having that discussion. Mm -hmm. Then they themselves are part of that discussion, even if they're not comfortable actually having that discussion. Yeah, exactly. And be uncomfortable. Be uncomfortable. I mean, hey, comfort food is great. And comfort art can be great, too, in the right situation. Sometimes we do want to relax and vibe. But there are also lots of veggies out there that we need to be eating. And sometimes <laughs> we need to be uncomfortable so we can grow big and healthy and strong. <laughs> you just compared art to eating veggies. And now I just want to write this whole comparison about the two of them. Please do. Please do. Please do. Opera is definitely one of those uh, acquire taste veggies. <laughs> word, word, yeah. Opera is, uh, you know, and what, what's interesting with, uh, you know, you see your like your classical art forms like opera. I, I have this envy as a hip hop cat because we've been very commodified and commercialized to the point where a lot of our mission ends up getting leached out or at least is secondary or tertiary to the money making aspects. And I love that, you know, your things like opera and ballet, because of the way that they've been endowed, have been able to kind of crystallize their intentions. And when you go to an opera, you know the aspects of things that you're getting and the, the visual language and the things that accompany that. Because the people who are the practitioners who actually care about the art form are able to carry it through. So that's also they're very dope. Have you heard, uh, there's a couple of new things out, but a good friend of mine, not a good friend of mine, but a friend of mine has started one called uh, Hip Hop Opera, Hip Opera. 
Uh, I mean, I've written things that are technically hip operas myself. Um, he, he takes so I, I might be familiar with this person. Who's yeah, he? it's his name is Babatunde, and he's a LA based, but he's a trained opera singer that works mm-hmm. all over the place. But the one that he's done recently is he he took uh, Figaro's aria from Barbara Barbara Seville. I think mm-hmm. it was one with Barbara Seville, and put it to a. Oh, I don't even know the artist. Some hip hop artist song, but like mm-hmm. sing all of the aria to that rhythm. But he's now done it with a few arias of like Cozy Fontutti, and he like gives you a rundown of like the entire opera of Cozy Fontutti, but in like a modern sense. It's really entertaining. But it's so cool to listen to him do it because he's taking the two things that he loves the most and puts them together. But now he's created this whole community of people talking about it who like don't know anything about opera or don't know anything about hip hop. And now they're starting to like, listen to these artists, you know, these like professional trained opera singers listening to these artists that they never would have listened to before because now they're hearing them in a different way. And I just love how it, you know, he's been able to connect the two of them. No, that sounds awesome. I mean, well, and I've always said that the thing about hip hop that I love is that it exists to translate things. And that's the great thing about it. You find whatever style and whatever thing that you can get and create to be a part of, and then you share that with other folks. I'd love to see this show. I, I think I've heard of this writer and man, uh, if, if y'all are friends, uh, I know some hip hop artists who are also trained opera singers who probably would be great to jam along with. Oh, really? So oh, yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he's big in my newsfeed because obviously 90% of my newsfeed are opera people. So I Word, keep popping yeah. up. But I just think it's so wonderful because then I'll go through and read the comments, you know, and all these people who are not opera people being like, oh, I didn't know that's what that show was about. Or, you know, now they're listening to opera and all the opera people are listening to, you know. Yes, so, yes. It's awesome. But yeah, I'll send it to you. It's really cool. But I just love the, the combination of the two. It's so awesome. Yeah, that might be way more exciting to watch the operas. I get tired with no. arias. They go on way too long. <laughs> well, but no, it's great to be able to translate things to make people understand how stuff works. I mean, like, the first hip-hop play I wrote was an interpolation of Macbeth, where I made it, like, it nice. was about, like, a Biggie-type character who was running the rap scene. <laughs> and, um, you, know, you know what I mean? And I used, like, some uh, underground rappers from the scene to be in the show, and we did... Uh, dialogue and then rap and stuff like that. And I, I've since done things where like we've incorporated, uh, we've done hip hop rise, meaning that like the entire show is in verse and mm-hmm. we flip things like time signatures to show different types of languages and stuff like that. Um, it also makes me think of, I wasn't involved with this show, but the show Ballerina Loves B-Boy, where it was a ballet show with break dancers where they were having them have a conversation about their arts and this goes very much into what i'm trying to get at with my work uh from my end as an you know i'm an mc words are my thing so i do everything i can to make my words make sense with all of the other stuff and it's great when the other art forms your dance groups your your uh singing folks who are using melody and people who are using visual art are able to also translate things in a way that makes everything else make sense mm-hmm. that's like art's real job right I mean, yeah, we, all, exactly. we always act like it's just supposed to be there, like, for fun and for chilling, but it's also for sanity and for us to understand things. It, totally, yeah. And that's why I love all the new weird, not weird, but the new modern stuff, because you, you know, they're currently writing operas about events that are happening now. Yes. You know? And so it's it's able to to communicate and talk about those events and then relate them to people that are currently living in the moment. 
Just yeah, which wanna... makes it more relatable than watching Nick B five hundred times. Right. Well, and and what I think is important also is, you know, with opera, with theater, with a lot of our more classic arts, we find ourselves remaking stories a lot. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, remixing and reinventing is great. But I remember when I heard that they're doing a, I think a film remake of, um, what's the the Romeo and Juliet one, um, the musical. Uh, I'm, I'm such a jerk. It's the, the big, it's like one of the biggest musicals. You know oh, what I'm talking about. Oh, West Side Story. West Side Story, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Story. yeah, they're doing a so, film like, of that right now. So like the West Side Story, which I'm like, West Side Story is was an era's interpretation of Romeo and Juliet. Why don't we take it to the next thing instead of Rem- just yeah. like yeah. straight Let's up statically today. remaking it? Yeah. Let's tell today's story of West Side Story. Yeah. You know, what's the thing with that? You know, there's uh, nothing. I mean, heck, Romeo and Juliet itself wasn't even written originally by Shakespeare, right? Right, exactly. Um, yeah. So We've it's, all been it's fine to down. take and move. Yeah. Just, you know, but, you know, um, in hip hop, we call it biting when you steal people's stuff, right? And people always ask, well, what's the difference between biting and sampling? What's the difference between ripping off and inspiration? And mm. for me, it's two things. I think it's very broad line. It's one, cite your sources. And two, Put yourself into it. And if you're not doing those things, then why are you remaking stuff? Yeah. Yeah, why do the same thing over and over and over? Like, tell your side of the story of it. Yeah. Or your view on it or your take on it or something. Yeah. Yeah. I found the video. Now I'm going to share it with you. (laughs) Excellent. Good job, Twin. Uh, So we're at an hour. I know uh, we try to keep them at about an hour. And we did say that we were going to do a Twin if you had any good twin stories and you did come up with a twin story earlier. So that's excellent. I don't know if you have any other <laughs> exciting twin stories. Um, I'll give a brief one. Um, okay. so, you know, this is a, a small one where it talks a lot about how, you know, I would go to auditions and stuff as a kid and be like, you know, I'm black and like I'm light skin and I could pass for white. And they're like, we don't understand you and your family. And I would bring pictures of my family to the shows and that included my aunt and uncle and their twins. Uh, They're both black, but because genes are genes, one of them is very dark skin. One of them is very light skin because that's life and how things go. And that's kind of been one of my examples that I've been sharing to people of like, you know, all of this stuff is all very incidental and let's not treat each other based on those things. Feel free to acknowledge and celebrate, but, uh, not stress them as they're as big as a deal as they really are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we had friends who are were both brother and sister are Mexican, and one, yeah, would get very dark in the summer, and one would get very light in the summer. Mm-hmm. Same parents, lived in the same house, just that's what their skin did. Yep, jeans are weird. <laughs> jeans are weird. <laughs> they do their thing. Very true, too. Uh, so what is... We're going to post um, and tag a bunch of things. Is there a specific website for you and a specific website for the current project at the uh, museum that we should be tagging and and advertising? Uh, So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's the museumofdeadwords.com. And then do you have one? And yes, dialect spelled with my name. Oh, by the way, it's just, it's not the Museum of Dead Words, excuse me. It's just museumofdeadwords.com. 
and okay. mine is dialect.com spelled with a Y and a K, D Y A L E K T dot com. That both have that um, on. I think both pages there is a link to the event bright, which has uh, the panel discussions and like which theme that each day is. Uh, the album is the Museum of Dead Words, which you can find on all the streaming and download places. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's 11 songs on that. The um, the first single is called um, uh, Preach to the Choir. <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, you say you tour too. On your website or on one of the websites, does it have a tour listing if you have any upcoming places you're going to? Because like, I'm in California, so I'm not going to be able to jump out to New York to see your show. Uh, is there a tour list? Do you know you're going places sometime soon? Well, so we're kind of shutting it down after this. We, um, uh, my wife is pregnant and congratulations. Um, That's going to take some time. (laughs) Yeah. She's due at the end of October. So we're, um, in a week, we're going to be hosting a financial literacy film festival, which is really exciting as people make short films about finance and empathy and being good with each other. So, um, yeah. So after that, um, we're going to be doing the paternity maternity leave thing. So uh, probably not going to get back out to doing the show other places until 2020. Uh, okay. I've played in California a few times. Um, L.A., the Bay, uh, Santa Barbara. Uh, where are you at in California? Los Angeles. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm looking for a, a fun art kind of area to do out there again. But, yeah, that's probably going to be after the baby comes out. <laughs> And then you guys figure out life with a baby because that changes a couple things. Sleep schedule right, right, and time. Right. Yeah, Happens. you know, I'll just have someone else to bring on the tour with me. Exactly. Good education. Travel around, meet new people, see what it's like in the real world. That's right. It's going to be great. It'll be, it'll be really cute. And no one will be able to boo me because I've got a cute baby in my arm. Right? Nobody <laughs> can turn that down. Right? Everyone's it's like, oh, he has reviews. a kid. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's what I'm banking on. (laughs) Perfect. It's always good to have backup plans in case your first plan goes wrong. (laughs) And you have a show coming up in Philly, you said. I, yeah, Cindy does. I'm at the the, uh, Opera Philadelphia 019 Festival, and we load in tomorrow, and then we open next Wednesday, so a week from this Wednesday. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be amazing. It's all... It's a lot about words and about how technology has changed our lives. Oh, man. So, wow. It's really in line with the kind of stuff I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the things you were saying, because it's, it's about how, you, how people text each other and how information gets across and how some story, you know, in a remote part of Russia, all of a sudden is like all over the world in a matter of minutes, where that never would have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, you yeah. know, and then how people from all over the world were now like sending messages to these two kids through Periscope and WhatsApp. And, you know, they ended up dying and nobody knows if they killed themselves or if the special forces killed them, you know, but it's just right, this, yeah. whole, this whole event. Um, and it's a world premiere. It's a brand new piece that is still was still being written. They just finalized the music last week. So oh, I know uh, how it is. Yep. <laughs> it's a really awesome, interesting pro- process, but yeah, it's a lot about words and how those affect people. That's really amazing and awesome. And please send me stuff about that. I know that I'm not going to be able to go because I'm in the midst of my shows and also the whole pregnant wife in a different city thing. Um, 
but uh, I I would love to know if there's any way I can help jam or translate or we do some stuff in conjunction because it's like so like on with what I'm so with, relevant. What I'm doing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'll send you some stuff. Please, please do. Awesome. And thank you guys. I had a great time rapping with y'all. <laughs> Excellent. That's yeah. Good. I'm going to go listen to more of the music. I only listened to the one song that you sent the email, or the email was sent that had it. Now I want to listen to all the other songs. Yeah, so um, it's, um, I would say for now, go to SoundCloud with it. So a really annoying thing happened. Uh, I guess, it's a, well, yeah. So I guess I've been doing too well on Spotify. Because I've been touring around and I've been getting people streaming it, and they suspended my account because they don't believe I'm doing as well as I'm doing. <laughs> Interesting. It's, you think they'd be yeah. excited that people were coming to their site? That's what I would think, but you know, so you know, I've been doing pretty well. I've got like thirty thousand hits um, per song, which is like I think not like suspiciously alarming. It's still you know like indie artist kind of numbers, but. Uh, yeah, so you can't hear the you can only hear two of the singles on Spotify. You can't hear the rest of the album, which is frustrating me because that's messing with my ability to get people to listen. Yeah, but okay. uh, but SoundCloud yeah, so, has all of it. Yeah, I put all the songs on SoundCloud, and what I did with the SoundCloud version is the title of each song also has the word next to it. So oh, um, that's cool. See that the word uh, that each song is talking about. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Cool. Yeah, and if you have any other thoughts or questions or ideas, please feel free to holler at me. And I uh, can't wait to check out the show. Um, I listen to some of the other stuff you guys do. You guys are great. Thank you. Mm, thank- yeah, come out to L.A. Uh, I work at East West Players in Little Tokyo. And uh, we're all about doing new works, people of color, diversity, starting conversations, community building, and all that. So Let's let's do that. And also, can I throw you my artsy homies out in L.A.? Because I got some fun, diverse artsy homies. Yeah, we would there's no telling what we do. It jumps around all the time. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, that'd be great. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I'll send you folks. and definitely come check you when I come out there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, good thank luck you. with the, the event in a couple weeks and with Baby and not long after that. Yeah, most of And I'll talk <laughs> to you guys yeah, soon. So thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.